Well, I think you know that I'm, I'm no psychologist, but after um, a certain amount of years just observing people and kind of being astute as I observe people, I've come to the conclusion that if you really want to know what people think, uh, you either get them drunk or, or listen to them pray. Now, um, maybe that's why Jesus, like, his first miracle was turning water to wine. Maybe that's why he hung out in bars all the time with people. But I digress, and it's not even a minute into the message yet, so this is going to be some evening. Uh, but seriously, there's certain times in our lives when our defenses are a little more down, we're a little more raw about who we are, and I think that prayer is one of those times. When we pray, you, when you pray, you communicate a lot about yourself. And think about it, when you hear someone pray, you're listening in on a conversation between a person and the living God. You can tell, a lot of times, what a person thinks about God by how they pray. You can tell what is maybe most important in a person's life by how they pray. There are just few moments in human relationships that are more intimate than prayer. And I think that that's why, for me, that's why the Lord's Prayer is such a gem to us. You get to see Jesus' heart exposed. And since Jesus comes from the Father, since He's actually God, wrap your mind around that one, He knows exactly what is on the heart of the Father. You hear Jesus pray, you are hearing God pray the things that are on God's heart. You ever thought about that? When you hear Jesus pray, you get to listen in to God pray the things that are on God's heart. It's an amazing reality. The God of the universe lets us in on one of the most intimate places of his heart. And it gets even better because Jesus invites us to join him in praying to his Father. We actually get to join in in praying to the Father as our Father. Now, as I said last week, the Lord's Prayer has become kind of part of my life because whenever I feel like I don't know how to pray or where to begin or maybe I feel like I'm praying too selfishly or too much in one area but neglecting others, the Lord's Prayer kind of is a template to bring me back to a, a solid center, a place to begin. The Lord's Prayer is uh, a scaffolding to me. It's a, it's a skeleton and then you can add meat to that prayer. It's an invitation to pray as Jesus prayed to His Father. I get to pray to that same Father and call Him my Father. Would you stand with me and let's pray this prayer together. That's the scripture for the evening. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Two years ago, during the summer, we worked through the Lord's Prayer one verse per week, and we dug really deep. Now, because we're going through the whole Sermon on the Mount, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount since... February, we're not going to get that detailed in this um, treatment of the Lord's Prayer. So here's my goal. My goal is to do a nice overview of the Lord's Prayer. This is week two. We started it last week. 
my hope is that you and I will leave here and, and take the Lord's Prayer with us with a little more um, depth to what it means that we might see it as an avenue for us to enter into intimacy with God. Okay? So we're not going to explain every word and nuance. So, what we need to do is do a quick recap from last week, because I understand some of you were not here. So the first thing we learned is how clearly relational this prayer is. By having us pray to Jesus' Father as our Father, He's not simply inviting us to pray. He's inviting us into a family conversation where the living God of the universe is, is approachable as our Father. Relational. Out of the gate. Second, we saw that because the prayer is not my Father who is in heaven, but our Father who is in heaven, it is impossible to pray the Lord's Prayer selfishly. When you say those words, you are inherently including every other disciple of Christ in the entire world. Those two words in the Greek, it starts off, Pater, Humon, Father, Our the one in the heavens. Starts us off on a vertical relationship between us and God, Father. And the our includes the horizontal relationship. It's our Father, not just my Father and not just your Father. The third thing we learned is how the Father, being the one in the heavens, means that He's very holy. He's very other than us. But he's also at the same time very near and accessible to us. See, the Hebrew concept of the heavens is not some distant city in the clouds governed by Lando. It's uh, almost a different dimension. It's other than our space. You like that? But, it, but it's right next to us. We're always in... Um, physics has really helped us out here. Uh, fourth dimensions. And uh, heaven being nearby. God being completely other but also very close and we meet him oftentimes in thin places like prayer and the sacraments and service to other people. Jesus, or just as um, that first line, it, it sets us out on the right foot. But then we get into the meat of the prayer. And if you ever wonder if your prayers are, are too self-centered, Jesus gives us a corrective because the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer are all about God. And not about me and not about you. So last week we covered, hallowed be your name. Meaning, may your character, your godness, God who you really are, may that be known on earth as it is in heaven. Can you imagine, just for a minute, just how different the world would be if we each really knew God as he really was. How magnificent, how glorious, how loving if we really believed how much we were loved and cherished by God, we wouldn't need to be so defensive. We wouldn't need to be so uh, worried about protecting our own and making sure that we get a leg up on everybody else. The world would be a different place. So, hallowed be your name. Let your name and your character be known as it really is. We'd no longer try and be our own gods. Next, Jesus teaches us to pray that the Father's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Here we're praying something dangerous. We're asking God to bring His rule into the world. And at the same time, you know what that means, displacing every other kingdom. 
where it contradicts with his. That means displacing my kingdom and your kingdom where it contradicts God's kingdom. We're asking that God would come and displace every corrupt social structure, every kingdom that exploits and abuses. Third, Jesus teaches us to pray that the Father's will would be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. Literally, the word for for will in the Greek here is good pleasure. May your good pleasure be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what is God's will? What is his good pleasure? This is the will of the Father, that they may know the Son and believe in his name. So what we're praying here is that we would trust Jesus and that the world would come to know and trust Jesus and find new life and eternal life in him. Now that's an awesome start to a prayer. And it frees us from having to to be worried about being too selfish, being too self-focused. In fact, we're not mentioned at all in the first three petitions. Of course, if God's name were hallowed and his kingdom were fully here and his will was done in full, it would be greatly beneficial to us. So there's a little bit of a motivation there to pray that. But now, for this evening, it's to the next three petitions that we turn. And immediately, you're going to notice a shift in emphasis. It's almost like Jesus knows that before we can ask for ourselves, we have to get our minds right. We have to be focused on the Father. But he doesn't neglect the things that we actually need. There are three. Daily bread, forgiveness, and deliverance. And again, I'm not going to cover these in great detail. My goal is to expand our imagination for how the Lord's Prayer might come alive for us. We were kind of praying uh, at 4.30 out here, and, and some of the talk around the table was how this, can, this prayer can be so rote. You know, it can just be that thing that we've always prayed since we were kids. We always pray in church. And I, I, to me, that's, that's not the prayer's fault. That's our fault. So what I want to do is put a little meat on this thing and give us an imagination to see how awesome this prayer actually can be. So let's talk about bread. In the ancient Near East, just like in many cultures today, flat bread was the staple part of the meal. In fact, uh, it wasn't just the staple part of the meal to eat, it was also the utensil. So think of your favorite Indian restaurant, how you use the naan bread to eat, right? So that's, that's the idea. In other parts of the world, you might say, give us this day our daily rice or our daily latte if you're a Seattleite or something like that. But it's basic, the basic necessities of life. That's the point. In telling us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, Jesus is saying, Father, give us the necessities of life. So on the one hand, he is certainly talking about food here. Now, that's a little bit of a problem for many of us in Bellingham, Washington, who have, for lack of, I mean, we we have an abundance of food, a lot of us, right? We have freezers and refrigerators and pantries and gardens. And if you have an abundance of food, maybe one of the things that you can pray at this point in the prayer is, Father, thank you. Thank you that you have given me daily bread today. Now, clearly Jesus is drawing on the story of the Exodus here when he's talking about bread. And of course, in that story, God has rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, brought them out to the desert for 40 years. And he's, in, he's bringing them through what I like to think of a spiritual boot camp. He's taking them away from this pagan Um, this pagan environment and he's teaching them to trust him 
He's making water come out of rocks and he's giving them manna, this weird, what is it stuff, this flaky, bready stuff that just shows up like dew in the morning. He says, here, here are the rules. You can collect enough manna for you and your family each day, but don't try and store it up because if you store it up and keep it overnight, it's going to get rotten and, and somebody even tried that in the Bible and all these maggots were in it. It was gross. God wants to show the people and teach them that they can trust him day in and day out for everything that they need. In the same way, we can pray, give us this day our daily bread with integrity by recognizing that we actually are dependent on God. Even if we have freezers full and pantries full, we are dependent on God every day for those things. I know that right now in my house I have food probably for at least two weeks. I can afford my mortgage as of today. My family is healthy as of today. But the Lord's prayer reminds me that all I have is from God. A fire could take away my house while I'm preaching right now. I could go home to nothing. A horrible illness could take Corey and I out. I, or a child. Every day is a gift even when it feels like we have an abundance. And so what this prayer helps us to do is realize that the facade of security in our own stuff is just a facade if God isn't the provider. He is the provider of daily bread. But of course, this prayer won't allow us to just pray for our own daily bread. It's about give us this day our daily bread. So as we pray, thanking God for full cupboards, we can't help but pray for those who have nothing in the cupboard, who don't even have a cupboard. So we lift up those in the Horn of Africa, and we cry out that God would give daily bread. And not only flour and water bread, but the necessities of life, like food and water and shelter and security and love. Right? This is an emotional and a, and, a, and a social aspect too. This daily bread is the necessities of life. As we pray for God to act, we might also pray that He show us how to act. God may, uh, many times uses us to be the answer to our own prayers. If my cupboards are full, what can I sacrifice to make sure that somebody else can eat? Right? And that's part of what the Action for Africa thing is about. If I have an education, how can I share that with other people? If I have the right and power to vote, how can I influence my leaders in helping those who don't have a voice? Right? So when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, Jesus is telling us to pray for everything we need. And we doesn't mean me and my wife and two kids, and we doesn't mean Letter Street's Covenant Church, and we doesn't mean the United States of America, we means everybody. And then he moves us to the relational necessities of life, reconciliation. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, 
oftentimes that's the awkward part of the prayer. Have you ever gone to like other churches or other groups and you start to say the Lord's Prayer and then it's like, I wonder if they're going to say, forgive us our transgressions or forgive us our trespasses or forgive us our sins or forgive us our debts. And it's like such a, a funny thing because like here's this prayer that the church has prayed since Jesus and we can't all get on the same page with it. So what is Jesus talking about here? Well, first, kind of the other words, okay? The word sin in the Greek is hamartia. Say that, hamartia. Hamartia, yeah. And it means, basically, uh, it's most often used when there's an offense against God, directly. The word transgressions is usually the translation of the Greek word, and this one's kind of fun, peripatoma. Peripatoma, you say that? Yeah, peripatoma. And this is another word for sin, but it, it, it... it's an offense against God, but it's also really an offense against people. Um, and we know that when we sin against somebody else, we also sin against God. But, uh, so sin, hamartia, and transgressions, peripatoma. In fact, this peripatoma word is the one used in verses 14 and 15, the part that says, you know, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your Father will forgive you. If you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive your transgressions. But in verse 12, the one that we're talking about in the Lord's Prayer... The word isn't hamartia or peripatoma. Okay? The word is aphalemata. And it occurs only twice in all the Bible. And it occurs those two times right here. Now, what does this word mean and how would we know what it means if it doesn't occur anywhere else in the Bible? Well, we know what it means because it occurs all kinds of other places in writings in the first century. Most often in the marketplace. It's a business word that Jesus is drawing into his prayer here. And most narrowly, it means financial debt. But it also became used to talk about moral debt. So that's why we choose to use the word debt here. By using the word debt, we're not only talking about finances, we're talking about moral and ethical debt to God. And so when you you pray this prayer, think of everything in the world... That you owe. It's not just moral, it's not just financial, it's not just, it's everything, your total debt. So, hey, if you're a student loan carrier like me, you can pray part of that, like, forgive my debt. I've actually heard of, like, entire student loans getting paid off before. And an angel sent us uh, an extra shot in the arm just last month. Um, I'm serious. Somebody gave us a big, um, a big donation towards student loans. So I'm saying that this this might just work. <laughs> um, but what is this debt that we owe the Father? What is, we talk, what is he talking about here? Well, Daryl Johnson sums it up with one word. He says, the debt that we owe the Father is obedience. The obedience of faith. We're made to live in a faith relationship with the living God. God, our Father, has our best interest in mind. He calls... He calls us to live in loving relationship with him and with others. And Jesus gives us a grand vision for what this life looks like. And you know what it looks like? The Sermon on the Mount. It's what we've been living in for the months, the last few months. Well, you know, we started this thing in February. And every week that we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, I'm more and more confronted with the fact that I need to ask forgiveness for my debt. You know what I'm talking about? Like, this really makes one poor in spirit. When you're looking at Jesus' incredible vision for what life can look like in the kingdom, and how often I fall short, uh, fall short of that. 
And it makes me say, forgive me my debt. Lack of faith. I'm poor in spirit. I think that this might be one of the most incredible lines in the whole Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know, asking God to make His name holy or to bring His kingdom or that His will would be done, that, that makes a lot of sense. Like, He would probably want that done. It even makes a lot of sense to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Like, God's our Father, we're His kids, so... You know, that makes sense to me to ask the Father for the things that we need. But this is a weird one. Jesus knows that we are sinners. He knows that we are broken and selfish. He knows that we rebel against God and that He, in praying this prayer the first time, He knows that He's eventually going to die because you and I and all the world outright rebels against Him. And yet... He who is closest with the Father commands us to ask the Father to forgive our debts. That is amazing grace. We have no no appeal, no ground to stand on to ask God for this stuff except for the cross. We have no claim for forgiveness except the Father's great love and mercy for you and I. And this forgiveness we ask for, it's not only personal, it's corporate as well. Forgive us, church, Lord. Forgive Lettered Street's church for times of disobedience and apathy. Forgive us as a nation, Lord, for being a culture of decadence and selfishness that keeps others oppressed so that we can live a certain lifestyle. Forgive us as a species, Lord, for our collective rebellion and violence against your creation. And once we've tasted, once we've tasted this grace, once we realized that we deserve death and God gives us not only forgiveness but new life, we cannot help but become the types of people who forgive others. God's forgiveness is not conditional. He doesn't withhold forgiveness if we don't forgive others. John Stott says, God forgives only the penitent. And one of the chief evidences of true penitence is a forgiving spirit. So, God forgives those who are genuinely sorry for what they've done, right? Not just sorry they got caught, like so many of us did when we were kids. When you're truly sorry, and you have truly been forgiven, it makes you, it makes you a more forgiving type of person. Another way to say this is no matter what words we pray, no matter what words we pray, we are not really asking for forgiveness if we don't forgive others because we really don't know what forgiveness is. We might be asking God to excuse us, but we are not asking Him to forgive us. When we fail to forgive, I think what we're really asking God for is grace for ourselves and justice for other people. When we fail to forgive, we hold on to the hope that our debtors will suffer. And sometimes we mask our lack of forgiveness with with mere mercy or tolerance, like we just tolerate other people. We put up with people, but never really extend them grace. This is a hard one. So... That's the Bible answer. 
right? When we are forgiven, we extend forgiveness. Now, God knows the reality of many of our lives. God knows some of the depths of the pains and abuses that you may have experienced. And maybe the place to start in this prayer is, Father, change my heart that I'm able to forgive because I don't feel like it. A few weeks ago, we talked about motives behind why we do things, why we pray, why we fast, why we give alms to the poor. The point of that wasn't that we, we wait till we're all perfect and have perfect motives. We would never do anything if we waited to have a 100% pure motive. But I think what Jesus is on about, what he wants from you and I, is honesty about where we're really at. Yeah, I need forgiveness. And there's this person in my life or this situation in my life where I just don't feel like I want to forgive that person. I've been hurt too deeply. Father, would you heal me? Would you make me want to want to forgive? Pray that. That's a starting point. Now, just the fact that Jesus commands us in his prayer. Think about this. His prayer has six petitions. Six, that's it. Just the fact that one of them, one-sixth of this prayer is asking for forgiveness, tells me that Jesus is a realist. He's a realist. He knows that we're weak. He knows that we're frail. So he gives this final command in his prayer, deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now this is weird because, you know, all my life growing up and, and thinking about other parts of the Bible, it's really clear, like, God doesn't tempt people. God doesn't tempt people. I've been taught that. The scriptures say that. So I don't understand this prayer. Lead us not into temptation. Like asking the Father not to lead us into temptation. Okay, here we go. Let's listen to this. God does not tempt, but he does test. A temptation is an enticement that you put out for someone and you want them to fail. You want them to fall. So when I'm trying to catch a mouse, I tempt that mouse with peanut butter on that mouse trap. I want the mouse to go over and get the peanut butter. So snap, right? Or maybe I should use one of those humane traps, but I don't. That's temptation. God doesn't do that. He doesn't tempt. Tests, on the other hand, are good. They're good things because they prove our character and can improve our character. So tests really just let everybody know what's really inside. And there are also opportunities to improve our character. When we're tested with hard times and challenges, it gives us opportunities to enter new depths of trust and obedience. You never know how much trust you have in God until God is all you have, right? Now, what the evil one does is try to hurt God. He hates God. Frankly, he doesn't really care about you and me. I know that that's a blow to our ego. The evil one doesn't really care about you and me. He cares about offending God and hurting God. He just happens to know, though, that the way to break God's heart is to hurt his children. So unfortunately, I know this is, a, again, a burst our ego, but uh, we're basically pawns in a game where the evil one is trying to uh, make us not trust God anymore because it would break God's heart. 
And so what the evil one does is takes a test and turns it into a temptation. You might be tested, for example, with financial stress or difficulty at work or a big career decision. And the evil one whispers lies to us. The evil one wants us to think that God doesn't care about all our little stupid situations, right? He wants us to exert our power. The evil one wants us to use power to preserve the facade that we are actually in control. And that might mean walking on other people or bad-mouthing them so that we feel in control and preserve our own. The evil one will convince us that relying on an unhealthy relationship would make us feel better or that depending on a chemical substance is the answer to numb our pain. And ultimately, the evil one wants us to lose faith in Jesus. That's the whole deal. It's not very complex. In fact, the evil one's pretty boring and he's not very creative. He just takes good stuff and twists it. Over the course of history, people have dealt with these temptations and attacks of the evil one in different ways. Sometimes people get hypersensitive and see demons behind every negative event. They focus more on spiritual darkness than on the gospel. And in a way, the evil one wants us to do that. He wants us to focus more on him than actually the good news, right? So that's not necessarily a good way to go. Or there are those who pretend evil doesn't even exist. They're out there. They, uh, like, you know, like ostriches, they put their head in the sand and say, nope, there's no evil, just bad stuff happens, and that's all there is. That's folly as well. Third, maybe you've met some of these folks, they're the spiritual commandos that try and, like, take on the devil, and they think, you know, we're going to kick butt and take names, and I can defeat and stand up to any temptation. Uh, wow, I'm like Navy SEAL church commando. They think they're strong enough to defeat him. And Jesus totally knows better. He knows we're weak. And so he tells us to pray that the Father would deliver us. You guys, that's our best weapon, is to recognize that the Father can defeat the evil one. So I've learned to pray. Father, don't let the evil one turn tests into temptations. Because I am weak and I will often fail. Would you deliver us? Think of the horrible reminder of evil in Norway this past week. And you can pray, deliver us. Think of how the corrupt and powerful are taking advantage of starving refugees in Somalia and pray, deliver us. Think of your own sin and those areas, those ruts that you complete, you, you, you always go back to like a dog to its vomit. And pray, deliver us. And once again, we are desperate for God to be God in our lives. Because we are in need of the daily necessities of life. We're in need of forgiveness. We're in need of deliverance. We need the gospel that Jesus died, that we might have forgiveness, that we might be delivered from death, that we might pray this prayer to God as our Father. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this invitation into relationship with the Father. Thank you not only for the words 
and for the structure, but for the reality that are behind the words and the structure. That, Father, you love us, that you invite us to pray to you, that you include us in your work of changing the world by, by asking that you be known as you really are in the world, that your kingdom would come, that your good pleasure would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for reminding us that any good thing in our lives comes from you. And help us to be thankful and help us to be generous. Thank you that you're a realist, that you know how weak we are, that we need forgiveness. Thank you for dying for us, that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. I pray that you would teach us more and more each day, not only how much we need your forgiveness, but how to receive it. And make us people, make us people, Lord, who are generous with that, with forgiving others. And Lord, in the meantime, between the now of your kingdom and the not yet of it fully being here, Deliver us. Deliver us from the evil one who would want to sidetrack us and cause us to doubt your love for us. I pray that you would break through barriers and bondage and break chains, Lord. Break chains of dependence, of addiction, of doubt. Deliver us, Lord. And not just us in this room. Deliver us, humanity, the creation. Deliver us from the evil one. We gladly declare that yours is the kingdom and power and glory forever and ever. 